Uh, what's essential about being reformed? What's essential about being reformed? As a cultural and theological tradition, what's our defining mark? What gift, theme, or emphasis do we offer to the world and to the broader church? What are our first fruits? Last, you should hear last week. What are our first fruits? Those questions are being asked by the St. Croix Reformed Church in the Virgin Islands. In 1740, Dutch cane farmers and slave traders trafficked in sugar and West Africans. And they planted a Reformed Church. In the mid-1800s, that church closed, the building was sold to the Lutherans, and an institutional reformed presence disappeared from the island. But then in the 1990s, by some stirring of the spirit, the St. Croix Reformed Church was rebooted and reformed. They built a new building atop a verdant hill, and they began to gather a congregation of snowbirds and Crucians, what they call natives of the island. Therefore, on this island that is 75% black, mostly West Africans, West African diaspora, the church began to wrestle with its history. When they gathered for communion, should they use the historical communion chalice etched with the names of slave owners and slave traders? What are the dynamics of race, power, and repentance when building a new church culture? What's essential to being reformed? What first fruits do they have to offer? Dear friends, what we recite, remember, and rehearse in symbol and story is what forms a community. And for Reformed folks, this text in Genesis is one of those essential formative stories wherever we gather. So consider... God promised Abram and Sarai, two dry old nomads, that they would have land and children, but decades passed. They survived famines, they took refuge in Egypt, they amassed great wealth, they waged war, they grew older, and there was still no sign of a child. God's promise stood in sharp contrast to their barrenness. Eventually, Abram thought it such foolishness that he took matters into his own hands and he drew up a will to pass on his possessions to a favored servant, Elizer. Now, it's worth noting here that Elizer is not named as the son of a father, the typical designation. 
But Eliza here is noted as the child of Abram's property. Literally, the son of my house. Barely a person. That said, whenever God had promised didn't reflect the reality that Abram knew. Therefore, God drags Abram outside to look up at the stars and invites him to start counting. And this is not the flickering of a few stars against the ambient light of the city. Don't do this tonight. Be sorely disappointed. Get to about six. This was the pitch black darkness of the desert sky spangled with millions and billions of stars and the clouds of faraway galaxies. This was quasars, nebula, and a cosmos that's birthing new stars while expanding outward at an ever-increasing speed. And God doubles down. To one without a son, God says, so shall your offspring be. Not only will you have a child, but you will have farther, farther more than you can be numbered, than can be numbered. So God made an intangible promise, vivid, graphic, and intergalactic. One way to read the Bible. One way to read the Bible is as the unfolding story of the covenants that God makes with humanity. Our text, the Abram story here, the Genesis text, is one link in that chain of covenants that runs throughout Scripture. And this is one theme or first fruit that Reformed folks offer. What distinguishes a Reformed reading of Scripture is an emphasis on the covenant-making activity of God. It's what we have to offer. So let me suggest two qualities or implications for those covenants. Good. Annie Lamont was a writer, alcoholic, single mom, and a wreck with a nagging sense that despite how hard she ran, God was tracking her down. She thought of God as an alley cat who wouldn't leave her alone. Listen to her description. I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and a loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time. <laughs> Give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my household, houseboat door whenever I entered or left. 
But later, when Annie Lamont's life was ruptured and chaotic, she walked out of a church service. And then she writes this. I began to cry, and I left before the benediction, and I raced home, and I felt the little cat running at my heels, and I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as God's own dreams, and I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head and said, forget it. I quit. I took a deep breath and I said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. God pursues us. From the first moment when God goes looking for Adam and Eve to picking out Abram and making promises to entering into creation in Christ to steadily padding after us, each of us like an alley cat, God pursues us. Abram doesn't go looking for God. There's no indication that Abram was a seeker who forged a relationship with God because of his discipline and dogged determination. Rather, the story reads that when Abram was 75, God came to him and said, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you I will make you unto a great nation and bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The initiative is, is God's. The pursuit is God's. The promise is God's. Thanks be to God. Amen? The second implication is this. As Abram peers up into the night and counts the scar, the, the scars, the stars, there's this line. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, You have to wonder what changed. Was Abram impressed by the starry, starry night? Was he persuaded that if God could make these stars shine, he could surely kindle life in an old womb? Or was there something in the tone of God's voice? Was he convicted and convinced by God's confidence? All we're left with is Abram looking up and believing. What changed Abram's mind? What sparked faith in Abram's heart? 
Walter Brueggemann gets at it this way. What moved Abraham to a new response? Surely it wasn't he feels new generative power in his loins, nor because he has new expectations for Sarah. The new promise for his life is not an expectation of flesh and blood. Rather, he has come to rely on the promise speaker. He has now permitted God to be not a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is organized. That's an important line. He's not permitted God to be a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is now organized. The new pilgrimage of Abraham is not grounded in the old flesh of Sarah or the tired modes of Abraham, but in the disclosing word of God. So, enough with Brueggemann. All throughout Scripture, God pursues us and makes promises with us, and he, what he wants in response is relationship. He wants to be the voice around which life is organized. And Abram's response gets credited as righteousness by God. Belief squares things up with God. All that God counts here is trust. Trust that God will keep his promise. Seems simple enough. And yet, truth be told, throughout the rest of Scripture, the people on the other end of the covenant fail to live up to their end of the deal. Over and over again, they fall away and forget. They slip up and screw up. They deny and doubt. They waffle and walk away. They behave just like me and you. And still relentlessly and repeatedly and even unto death, God promises and pursues them in order to renew his covenant. So dear friends, the first fruits that reform folks bring is an emphasis on God's covenant-making activity the deep gratitude that we belong to God. The shadow of that emphasis is when we think the promises are exclusively ours. The spoilage of those first fruits has been apartheid in South Africa slavery in the Virgin Island and the Americas, and our own disappointing and damning history with race. Amen. We've held the promises and been slow to recognize, celebrate, 
or participate in those promises with others. As one pastor puts it, and I'm almost done, so nudge your, wake your child. As one pastor puts it, covenant, it turns out, is not an agreement between human beings, after all, but a relationship initiated by God and sealed in baptism. In covenanting with human beings, God reaches out to them and says, you're mine. It's God's covenant that forms the basis of the church. Yes, within the church, there will be, at some point, we'll find disagreement among ourselves. But our disagreements do not give us the right to suggest that one of us should leave the covenant because it's God's covenant, not ours. Nor do our disagreements give me the right to suggest that you should move to a table that's further away. Because it's not my table you're invited to, but God's table. The first fruits that we rehearse, remember, and offer to others is not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of God. The theological gift or emphasis that we share is the good news that without precondition, God seeks after us, promising to be our God, and we his people. So truth be told, we're the shining stars of God's promise to Abram. This is a black church. I tell you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're a shining star. <laughs> Truth be told, we're the shining stars of God's promise to Abram. May our lives be ordered in response to those promises. May we come to the table as a sign and seal that those promises are fully realized in Jesus Christ. And may we share these first fruits with others. For the promises are not ours alone, but they belong to as many stars as fill the sky. Thanks be to God. Amen.